Global Crisis Bible Prophecy Health and Preparedness You are just in time. 11th Hour Dispatch was 1843. American society was in the midst of a absolute revival and interest in the soon coming of Jesus. But something else was happening also in 1843. Another religious movement was afoot. Horace Mann was visiting the nation of Prussia because he was very interested in in exploring and examining the schooling system in that nation. When he got to Prussia to watch the schools in action and learn what was going on, He found actually the schools were on vacation and he arrived to empty school buildings. He interviewed a few teachers, looked through some papers and sailed back to America. The year 1844, he released his seventh annual report to the Boston School Committee where he called Massachusetts to institute a Prussian style schooling system in the state of Massachusetts. Now, of course, he didn't know much about the system because he had not seen it, but he proclaimed that he learned all these things about it. That's example one. Example two, Wilhelm Wundt is the prophet of modern schooling, perhaps the most important individual in the formation of Prussian-style schooling, which later comes to America, as you're going to hear. He penned a total of 53,735 pages of educational philosophy during his nearly 70-year career interestingly spanning the, about the same time period as another 70-year writing career of another prophet you may know. That's example two. Take a look at this quotation. Every teacher should realize he is a social servant set apart for the maintenance of the proper social order. The teacher always is the prophet of the true God, speaking of modern prophets, and the teacher also is the usher in of the true kingdom of God, said John Dewey, perhaps the single most influential thinker on modern schooling. Welcome to a seminar entitled Schooled, where we are looking at the movement, particularly in American history, of modern schooling. And you see that right in the midst of this this religious awakening, this movement of God's last days people being risen up, there was another movement going on. And it was a very religious movement. As you've seen John Dewey say, the usher in of the true kingdom of God is the teacher because he's bringing about a certain social order. Now, of course, when people think of school today, they think of the school bus. 48,000 school buses carry tens of millions of children away from home each morning. And the bus, as well as the school, are, in the American mind at least, pretty sacred emblems. You don't, you don't criticize or question these institutions. These are wonderful, positive things. But upon closer examination, maybe they're not. If you look at school, just scratch under that surface a little bit. This is a place where condoms are being handed out to middle schoolers. Mom and dad don't get to know, no permission needed. This is a place where children are indoctrinated with worldviews like secular humanism, Darwinism, even postmodern relativism, that there are no morals, right or wrong. Is school such a good thing after all? Now, of course, parents send their children to schools with the best of intentions. They believe that the future education of their children is at stake, whether they're going to be good, productive citizens, they must be in school. But is it so necessary? 
It's worth asking because other than media consumption, school is where children spend pretty much the rest of their time. Children today, they don't, they don't have a lot of focused time with, with mom and dad. They don't spend time working, learning skills with their hands, experiencing the real world and real life. Very little of those things. Basically, the reality of kids today is school and media consumption. How about schooling? Is this something that we should have such confidence in? I believe we have extreme levels of, of naivete about this. Now, we are going to talk about many individuals, human beings. But before I launch into the history, I want to be really, really clear on something. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the principalities and powers of darkness. So don't look at these men and say, they are the great enemy. We must wage our attack upon people and and expose their evil behavior. We are going to quote them. We will see what their plan, these architects of modern schooling, what they have built. But remember that Satan himself is the enemy of souls, not these human beings. In fact, speaking of the powers of darkness, listen to what Messages to Young People says. The powers of darkness strive to gain control of the human mind. Now, this is messages to young people. So this is about the young mind. Satan's agenda is to gain control of the minds of children. And that's no surprise. If you can get them while they're young, then you're going to have them through the rest of their life. Why talk about education then? Because I believe that schooling, other than media, is the second most potent area of control where Satan is gaining control of the human mind. And we also read in Mind, Character, and Personality that now as never before, we need to understand the true science of education. If we fail to understand this, we shall never have a place in the kingdom of God. So this is a salvation issue. This is a very serious issue at stake. People's salvation is on the line. Not just with our media consumption, but also with our schooling. Now, of course, I am a teacher. I've been a teacher for 11 years. But my schooling story begins a long, long time ago. 1985, heading into the public school system. Now, at that time, I was four years old going to kindergarten. But I actually began school at age three in preschool, which is not uncommon today. I went all the way through and then taught for 11 years. From age, so from age three to age 33, I've been in the schooling business. So this isn't meant to be a criticism of people who are in the schooling enterprise, but that's where I've spent my life. I've been in 13 different schools as a teacher or as a student, different kinds of schools. I've taught in public schools, Christian schools, charter schools, Adventist schools, done the rural, the urban, the, the suburban, all of the above. And so I've and experienced all this and studied the history, I really feel a burden to share with people what's really going on in the schooling movement. Now, as a kid, I guess it's highly ironic that I became a teacher because I had a severe distaste for reading as a child. But I was from a family where I had two older siblings that were really good students. They loved to read and they got good grades. And so I came from an academic family. So when I got involved in school, I guess, you know, I wanted to do well in school. I wanted to get good grades, partly because I was just very competitive. So I wanted to, to perform well and get the good grades, but with the very minimum amount of learning possible. Don't do too much learning, still get good grades. That was the goal. So I had to figure out, I guess, what you might call the game of schooling. Here's how the game of schooling goes. First, figure out how the teacher calculates the final grade. This is essential. And then you work proportionately within those categories of the teacher's grade. Now, don't apply any effort outside those categories. Secondly, figure out which tasks earn points. And only do those tasks that earn points. Third, to assure full credit on assigned tasks, submit exactly what the teacher is looking for. 
when in doubt of what she's looking for, ask her. Never, ever try to be creative or independent. Just do what the teacher wants you to do. Fourth, also to assure full credit. Be sure to do the tasks a little better than most of the other students. As long as you're competitive with them, beating most of your peers, you'll get good grades almost all the time. Fifth, pay attention to and take notes on only that which the teacher indicates will be on the test. When in doubt, ask her and she will probably tell you. (laughs) Number six, submit the test information to short-term memory through minimal study and memorization techniques in order to score well on the test. Of course, you'll forget the information later, but you got the grade. Calculate your grade as it's going. Go to the teacher often. Calculate that grade down to the decimal place and then find the easiest extra credit assignment to bring the grade up to the next highest mark. This was the game of school that I played for years. In fact, math is just a little bit different than some of these steps. Within math class, you have to watch how the teacher does the problem, learn the formula, and then basically all the other problems are going to be the same kind of problem that he showed you how to do. So you memorize a formula and you just solve the problem. You're not solving any real problems. You're just plugging numbers into a preset formula that you've memorized. And then you could score well on math tests and of course submit your math homework minimal minimal and as a student I didn't learn deep thinking deep reading deep analysis I learned as little as possible but when I graduated high school I had a 3.5 GPA now here's the real funny thing about the 3.5 GPA I went four years of high school 3.5 by the way in America is like halfway between an A minus and a B plus okay so that's that's pretty good grades it's enough to earn an honor scholarship to college and that's why I wanted the 3.5, because it was money, right? So I went four years of high school, though, without ever reading a single book. Four years of high school, didn't read a single book, got a 3.5 GPA because I learned the game of school. Now, by the way, the GPA was 3.500 because I didn't want to put in one ounce of effort beyond what was absolutely needed in order to get the honors scholarship. And, and so going into my last exams to calculate that grade point average, I remember that I could determine what my grade would be on the exam before I ever took it by knowing how much to study and how much to memorize. And so I, I knew what grades I was going to get on all the final exams before walking in, I'm, I'm going to get a B minus on this one, an A on that one, an A minus on that one, and an A minus on that one, or whatever. And by, by deciding how much to study for each one, and I could, I could choose my own grade. That's exactly how I ended up with a 3.500, because I knew what needed to be scored on in order to round it out at 3.5. So I look back on my own schooling history. You know, it's somewhat humorous, but it's also kind of sad. What a lot of wasted time, right? I mean, I finally got to college and began to become interested in actual learning. And that was mostly on my own. Uh, Almost everything I've learned, almost everybody will tell you this, almost everything that we've learned in life did not take place in a classroom, right? As a kid, interesting things were just media and entertainment, you know, the sports world, all of this kind of waste of time stuff. But as as a college student, the free time was spent studying and learning about how the world really works, studying history, studying theology. So that's my schooling story. But it's hard for us to imagine today a world without full-time schooling. It just We take it for granted that it's inevitable. It has to be a part of, of reality. Isn't that the way that God designed reality? Maybe not. Let's just go back a little ways in history, just 200 years or so in American history. Schooling was not the, the idolized enterprise that it is today. In fact, 250 years ago, 
teachers were often convicts who were serving out the remainder of their sentence that they had to teach in order to finish their, their, uh, their prison sentence. Uh, George Washington's own, own teacher was an example of that, was, was a convict. Um, but, you know, even though the, the teaching profession wasn't this, you know, lifted up on a pedestal kind of thing, there was still teaching happening. All the time there was teaching happening because there were teachers everywhere. Mom and dad are teachers, aunts and uncles, grandma and grandpa, the guy down the road who has a business doing this, the blacksmith across the street, basically anybody who was living life, who had a passion, who had a skill, maybe a tutor who had some knowledge of literature, whatever it might be, they were all potential teachers. So learning happened all the time, even without compulsory schooling. In American history 200 years ago, there was no such thing as full-time schooling as we know it today. It's hard for us to imagine a world without it, but people live very successful lives. In fact, Abraham Lincoln himself only went to school for the equivalent of one year of formal schooling in his entire life, and that was scattered throughout. But that's not just Lincoln either. The most accomplished men of the 18th and 19th centuries in American history, same thing. They were self-taught men, self-made men. Attended a little bit of schooling, maybe had a little bit of a tutor, but for the most part, they learned on their own, kind of like all of us do with most of the most important things we've learned in our lives outside of the classroom. In the 1840s, complex literacy in America was, was virtually 100%. In Connecticut, only one out of 500 people was illiterate. And so this is a time in history where you didn't need to be professionally educated in order to be considered a person of knowledge. In fact, if you look at the great Advent awakening, the religious movements of the 19th century, it's no surprise they came from farmers and and even school dropouts. You're listening to 11th Hour Dispatch with author, teacher and speaker Scott Ritzmer. For more programs and information, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. There has been a full-on frontal assault on the human mind in our society. College professors are famously aghast at the lack of reading and writing skills in their students. Couple that with a recent study, it was found that only 31% of college-educated Americans can fully comprehend a newspaper story. Literally 30% of Americans cannot find the Pacific Ocean on a blank map, and a full 26% of our society believes that the sun revolves around the earth. It's time to wake up, to come apart and be separate, saith the Lord. The DVD series is called Schooled, the deliberate agenda to reduce individuality, destroy intelligence, and re-engineer society. In Schooled, You'll hear it straight from the mouths of the founders of modern schooling themselves. They're quite proud of it. Visit 11thHourDispatch.com and use promo code RADIO for a reduced suggested donation rate. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that Listen to this quotation from Christian Education. Our Savior did not ignore learning or despise education, yet he chose unlearned fishermen for the work of the gospel because they had not been schooled in the false customs and traditions of the world. So, Peter, James, John, the disciples, they had not been schooled with a false education, and that qualified them for the work. 
Now, I want to go back to these farmers again of the late 18th century. Have you ever heard of the Federalist Papers? This is a very important series of documents that were published in the 1780s to try to convince the New York farmer to advocate for the passage of the Constitution. Would the Constitution be ratified or not? 1787. Big question in American history. And the the farmers of New York State were a very important voting block in this. So, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison put together the Federalist Papers, and they argued for this. Who was the audience? The American farmer. Listen to an excerpt from the Federalist Papers. It may be objected to this, that not seven, but nine states, or two-thirds of the whole number, must consent to the most important resolutions. And it may be thence inferred that nine states would always comprehend a majority of the union. But this does not obviate the impropriety of an equal vote between the states of the, of the most unequal dimensions in populousness, nor is the inference accurate in point of fact. For if we can enumerate nine states which contain less than a majority of the people, and it is constitutionally possible that these nine may give the vote, besides there are matters of con- considerable moment, determinable by a bare majority, and there are others concerning which doubts have been entertained, which, if interpreted in favor of the sufficiency of a vote of the seven states, would extend its operation to the interests of the first magnitude. Now, you see, even I struggled to read this. I have a master's degree in this kind of stuff. And this is hard. To, I'm guessing that went over our heads for the most part, right? But the average New York state farmer was reading this for fun after his day of work. These guys were bright. In fact, in, 1770, in the 1770s, when Common Sense was published by Thomas Paine, it was literally the majority of the free population of, of Virginia that purchased a copy of Common Sense and read it. That's incredible. Now, people might say, well, that was way back then. I mean, things are different today. Well, let's look at a different country today. In Switzerland, only 23% of the students go to high school. Switzerland is one of the most prosperous societies in the entire world. It actually has the highest per capita income in the world. So if, you're, if you want to get a good education, it's not necessarily essential to sit in a desk full-time, year-round, for 13 years. The people back then in American history certainly didn't have that experience. But the kids who did go to school in the 1880s, they'd have a short period of school, a short term. And these fifth graders were reading George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, among others. I'd like to read for you an excerpt from George Washington's farewell address so that you can hear the kind of literacy level that these fifth graders were able to comprehend. The acceptance of and continuance hitherto in the office to which your suffrages have twice called me have been a uniform sacrifice of inclination to the opinion of duty and to a deference for what appeared to be your desire. I constantly hoped that it would have been much earlier in my power, consistently with motives which I was not at liberty to to disregard, to return to the retirement from which I had been reluctantly drawn. The strength of my inclination to do this, previous to the last election, had even led to the preparation of an address to declare it to you. But mature reflection on the then perplexed and critical posture of our affairs with foreign nations and the unanimous advice of persons entitled to my confidence impelled me to abandon the idea. Now, that was, again, really, really tough stuff. I I added up the number of words there. That was a total of three sentences. And the average sentence had 45 words in it. 45 words per sentence. This is pretty high-level stuff. Literacy is not what it once was. I decided to do a little test on these. You can actually just copy and paste literature right into a form online, and it will automatically identify the grade level, the reading level of it, according to a number of different measures. George Washington's is at today's reading level, which what would be called 19. Grade 19. I've never even heard of grade 19. Well, grade 19, I suppose grade 12 is, is, is the senior year of high school, right? So beyond 12, you would have to be in school for seven more years in order to comprehend 
George Washington, which kids were reading in fifth grade in the 1880s. Now that shows you how dumbed down we have become, just on the level of literacy. By the way, just for fun, I put in the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence into this form. You know what grade level? Just the preface of the Declaration of Independence, America's most important founding document, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that document. It was grade 25.8. So apparently you're supposed to go to school for 26 years in order to comprehend the basic founding document that declared America's independence from Britain and declared that all men are created equal. You're going to see, by the way, that this was a deliberate plan to dumb down the masses. You don't have a people this far gone from any intelligence, this much dumbed down, unless there's been an agenda at play. Now, let's see also what has happened just in the last part of the 20th century. Between 1940 and 2000, black illiteracy in America doubled, white illiteracy quadrupled. Also, in 1997, nearly 50% of the population was either illiterate or functioning at low levels of literacy. Only 18 to 21% of Americans are fully functionally literate. Between 1975 and 2000, there was a 37% decline in the number of individuals who were scoring above 600 on the SAT, even as the test was becoming easier. And also American students, who used to rank at the top internationally of academic measures, now rank 23rd out of 65 industrialized countries in math. In all subjects, the longer American kids are in school, the worse they measure up to other countries. Finland, who ranks near, near or at the top of virtually all educational categories, their kids over their childhood spend almost 50% fewer hours in school as our kids. So in Finland, they go to school about half as much from age 5 to 18. They're in school about half as long because they start later, their school year is shorter, about half as much at, at schooling, but far superior academically. Very interesting. We also see that in the last half of the 20th century, teachers' salaries rose 50%. Class sizes dropped 40%. The non-teaching bureaucracy grew 500%. And money spent on public education increased threefold. Kids now spend longer in school than ever before, and young adults are getting college degrees at higher rates than ever before. So the answer to our problem of dumbness is not more schooling, more funding for the schools, smaller classes, pay teachers more. All of this stuff has been going up and up and up and up. School is the problem, not the solution. And you'll see why as we look at the history. We've been dumbed down. The we is me and you too. Can we read? Can we understand complex literacy, analyze a text, truly comprehend it? We're all really struggling with this sort of thing. So here's a statement from Christian Education that says, Close reasoners and logical thinkers are few. For the reason that false influences have checked the development of the intellect. So this Seminar. This session and session two is going to be an analysis of those false influences. What is the history of modern schooling that came in and has so dumbed us down? I'm going to begin way back in the history, back in Europe, in the Dark Ages. The model of social control in the Dark Ages, the way that the elite planners of society would control the masses and control the society was by keeping them in total ignorance. That's why we call it the Dark Ages, right? There was no printing press. They were not able to read. The Bible was not translated into the common tongue. And so the people were very easily corralled and controlled. But then something happened in the history. William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, John Huss, Martin Luther, and of course, 
Gutenberg and his printing press. The Reformation absolutely exploded literacy throughout Europe. People were reading the Bible in print in their own language, and they were learning, and they were thinking, and they were questioning the reality that was presented to them. All of a sudden, the elite priest class doesn't have such control over society. There needed to be something done about it. So the Counter-Reformation took place. The Jesuit order was formed. The Jesuits were a part of the Counter-Reformation seeking to counter what was happening with all these people rising up and saying no to the system. And we hear from Bertrand Russell what kind of education they imposed. The Jesuits provided one sort of education for the boys who were to become ordinary men of the world and another for those who were to become members of the Jesuits. Ordinary men and women will be expected to be docile, industrious, punctual, thoughtless, and contented. So the Jesuit education model says, we we can't have all these people thinking for themselves. We've got to corral the masses and and control their thought. They need to be contented. They need to be thoughtless. And, And this is the mass of society. Certainly we will have a select few that we educate differently, inducted into the elite. But the masses will be controlled through schooling. Now, there was a nation at this time also, a couple centuries later, Jesuit-style schooling, and that was the nation of Prussia. Johann Gottlieb Fichte addressed the German nation in 1807, and he said the following. He's an educational philosopher. He says, education should provide the means to destroy free will. This is Jesuit education to the core. It became known as Prussian education. He also says, if you want to influence the student at all, you must do more than merely talk to him. You must fashion him, and fashion him in such a way that He simply cannot will otherwise than what you wish him to will. So do you hear the agenda? Now, this Prussian-style schooling, the goal was to produce in their their army obedient soldiers, in their factories, obedient and subordinated industrial workers. This was a military state where they said, we want to be the strongest empire in Europe, and they had just been defeated by Napoleon's army. They went back to the drawing board. They said, never again. We have got to take seriously the schooling of our children. We have to get them trained in uniformity of thought and eliminate all dissent. It's the perfect propaganda plan, isn't it? Start when they're young, raise them up through state education, and you've got them as yours. So Prussia, nearly the entire population, was required to attend schools where the intended purpose was not to teach actual education. It was to produce compliance. And they would learn the the, the basics of literacy. And you have the illusion of education. You teach them the, the rudiments of literacy, teach them some myths of state history so that they're propagandized to believe in the system. And most importantly, they are made into obedient cogs in the industrial and military machine. Deep thinking and reading were not encouraged. Questioning the reality that is presented to you is is just treason. It's just not allowed. Now, what were the fruits of this Jesuit-style education as imposed in the nation of Prussia? You can see it 100 years later in Germany. The Nazi movement was a movement not just of youth, but of people who were all on board. We are going to follow this great leader. We are going to do whatever the masters say. How is it that all of these intelligent people, that this this nation of, of, of people were able to be so manipulated into this movement? Schooling played a big part in that because Germany, of course, incorporated much of Prussia when it was consolidated as a a unified state in the late 19th century. So Prussian-style education was imported into Germany. What does this have to do with American history? In 1840, 
Horus Mann initiated a series of secret meetings in, among the elite of Massachusetts. And these meetings, called the Massachusetts School Committee, they met to discuss how can we now import Prussian-style education, Jesuit education, into America. The Massachusetts School Committee discussed these things. He presented his seventh annual report to the Boston Massachusetts School Committee in 1844. And he and his cohorts called upon Massachusetts to institute compulsory forced schooling, just like in Prussia, where virtually all of the children would have to be in this system. And what do they call for? grouping students by age, a non-intellectual subject matter, multiple layers of administrative supervision, and a teacher training program to get the teachers on board with this new style of schooling. To financially support this broadcast, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Here's Scott Ritzema with another final minute message. Susanna Wesley was the mother of 19 children, among whom were John and Charles Wesley, the famous reformers. She defined sin as anything that weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish for spiritual things. I thought that was a very helpful definition of sin. If there's something that is making my reason weaker, if it impairs the sense of conscience and I get calloused, If it obscures my sense of God like that smog in between me and the mountains, that is sin for me. If it takes my relish off spiritual things, that's sin for me because I'm not going to love the Word of God. We often ask the question, oh, what's the harm with a certain form of media? You know, we shouldn't ask what's the harm. Ask what is the spiritual benefit? Because if there's no benefit, then it is harmful because we could be doing something beneficial. Brought to you by BeltofTruthMinistries.org.